Welcome to FACL, Ontario's podcast. FACL is a coalition of Asian-Canadian legal professionals working to promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian-Canadian legal professionals and a wider community. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, listeners. This is Michelle Cito and Andrea Lee, your co-host for the FACL Ontario podcast series. Last week, we shared with you part one of our podcast episode on identity and race, featuring Jennifer King, an environmental law partner at a Bay Street law firm, and Faye Faraday, a social justice lawyer, policy consultant, and academic. Today, we continue our conversation with them. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here um, and you know talk about motherhood. And so... <laughs> <laughs> You're all uh, mothers of, you know, children of mixed race. How do you discuss the topic of race with them? You know, maybe Jen, we'll, we'll start with you and, and Faye, hear your thoughts. I mean, I'm personally interested because I have children of mixed race as well. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear this. So I think it's interesting. We've got different generations of lawyers and and also different generations of kids. So my kids are five and seven, and they're in a very diverse school. And we talk about race. I think that's one of the things that I find is, is different about me raising my kids versus regardless of how they look or how they're, they identify. I'm not scared to talk about race. I have to talk about it. And I think there's some discomfort with talking to your kids about race. I, I feel it too. I feel it too. Like, whereas I, I, I don't know, I've read a lot about how to talk to my kids about race. I've talked to people about it. I've tried to inform myself on the best way. And what I recognize is that I do actually have the privilege of not having to talk to my kids about race. And I could say something like, like placate them a little bit and say, oh, no, everybody's the same. And, but the, the reality is, is, that, is that I know that people get treated differently based on how they look and how they identify and how they act. And I, I think from a young age, I've talked to them about that. And so... I think for me, the struggle is that I, I've, I've so internalized the need to assimilate and my privilege of being white passing to many people that I have found myself just identifying my kids as white boys, <laughs> which I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't impose that on them. I think that that's really my struggle is that I'm raising two boys in this culture where there's so much advantage still regardless of what you hear all the time about how hard it is for white men these days, it's still such an advantage and they have so much privilege. And so my struggle, I think, is going to really be there to figure out how to really support them figuring out who they are. That's really interesting, Jennifer, because actually our kids are the same age. My five-year-old just turned six last week, but, you know, two girls, actually. And so it's really interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Faye, I think your kids are a little bit older. My kids are a lot older. They are uh, 22 and 18. And, you know, I'd always thought of them as little brown boys. Like that was just, I mean, they're much taller than me. And it was always a joke that they're like the tallest Filipino men you'll ever meet. They're like, I don't know, 5'8". <laughs> <laughs> But really, at five feet, I was the tallest person in my family ever. So my partner is from Newfoundland. And about six years ago, we, we were in Newfoundland. My son went out 
fishing on, you know, a little fishing boat and he's there in his like rubber overalls holding up the fish. And I thought, oh my God, he's a Newfoundlander. He's like, he's actually as related to all those people as he is to me. And it completely freaked me out. Um, And, you know, I've had conversations with my kids about race their entire lives. And, And we talk politics all the time. Like we talk politics at the dinner table every night and have done since they were really little. There's been no sort of, there's no topics that are, off the table and I've had a lot of conversations about them about how they identify and why it's important to me that I identify very strongly as a racialized woman and when they distance themselves from that how painful that is to me and I think that they I mean they both are very obviously mixed race and they're different shades one of my sons is is darker than me one of my sons is paler than me we've had a lot of really intense conversations about what it means politically to identify what it says about who you understand your community to be what it says about how you understand privilege what it says about what your responsibility is in yeah. community to look out for others. And and so we've had those intense conversations. And, you know, one of my sons wants to learn Tagalog and is like really wants to go visit the the Philippines. We haven't gone because of the uh the politics there of Duterte. Yeah. Um, it's a good reason not to go right That's, now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really important. I think it's been very interesting for him in particular because he spent the last year at school in the United States. And we've had a lot of conversations about how the politics around race in the United States are so different from the way they are in Canada. Systemic discrimination is absolutely rife in both countries. Don't get me wrong. But he was talking about how the space to identify as something other than white or black in the United States is smaller. And the scope yep. for politics around brown mm-hmm. is much smaller mm-hmm. and particularly not Latinx, right? So it's been an interesting journey for him and it's made him much more conscious of how he identifies and how much more nuanced the politics need to be. So the conversation about race has really become forefront of conversations in the household, at firms, at companies, people are talking about diversity and inclusion. They have been talking about it for a very long time. We have committees now devoted to diversity and inclusion at most, if not all law firms, including your law firm, Jen. Yes. And a lot of times race is being discussed in conjunction with talent and retention. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that and your role? I believe you're in the Diversity and Inclusion Committee at your firm. 
Yes. And actually, as, as we're talking, I would love to hear from you, Michelle, on what you think would be useful. Because one thing you notice, there, there's diversity in all different ways. And when you get to a certain point in your career, it's hard to see what it was like. It's hard to remember and to know what it's like to be a young lawyer at the beginning of your career. But uh, that's another conversation. <laughs> so I'm chair of the Recruitment and Retention Committee of the Diversity and Inclusion Council at my firm. And I don't love all of the, the buzzwords, but I will say that what, what works about my firm and that I'm, there's a reason why I've been here for four years, it's my first big firm, is that they have this council. And what's very good about it is that it's not just people who identify as diverse on the council. People are devoting their time to this council of all different backgrounds uh, right across the country. And what seems to work is that if there's a council and along with it, there's clear action plans and importantly, a budget to support the work and that there's clear connections at all levels. So this isn't just about a council doing some events and communications, which in themselves are important because we've talked about already seeing yourself at the firm. These things are not meaningless. They're very, very important. But it's having the budget to be able to do the work, get speakers, do training for the whole firm, and then have buy-in at all levels of leadership. Because it remains that the big firms, and we've seen articles in the Globe and Mail about this over the past few years, and even recently, that the diversity among partnership and partners in downtown Bay Street law firms remains poor. It still remains largely white and male, particularly the the more senior you get within law firms. So uh, the other thing that I've also really noticed that, that works in this council is that people get recognized for the work that they do in meaningful ways. And so we all see this all the time. Who are the people who do the work? Black Lives Matters. Who's asked to speak on behalf of the firm? Who gets trotted out? Who, who spends that time? Who runs the task forces? Who mentors and puts in all of this unrecognized time when at the end of the day, I don't care what big law firm you're at, you get recognized based on your billable hours and how much matter originating you have. That's really ultimately, no matter, there's so many different models, but I've never heard anything that, I mean, that's ultimately it. If you don't have those things, billable hours and matter originating or whatever you call it at your firm, you just don't advance at a firm. So in order to do the work necessary, you have to give people credit for the work that they're doing in this area so that you're not just having those women it's a lot of the time it's women, sorry. So doing that work and then taking care of their kids or whoever else they're taking care of and not getting those that billable time. So I think all of those things are really important to make that work meaningful and to ensure the people who are doing the work aren't getting held back in their own careers. And then ultimately, we, we go back to what we've been talking about during this chat is that representation is so important. And so it's almost as if I think that there's going to be a snowball effect or whatever. As Andrea, as big law firms start to look more like your small law firm that are actually diverse and collaborative, and we actually have the people at the leadership levels, we won't have to work so hard to be accepting and thoughtful and to build that diversity because people are going to be attracted to the firm because they can see themselves there. And it doesn't, you don't need to study this academically to know that that's what happens. And so, like I had said earlier, it's one of the reasons why I'm here. And it's actually one of the reasons why a couple of years ago, I started actively identifying as Asian. 
and I started kind of trying to get over my fear. I have a lot of anxiety, but even doing this call, doing this podcast, because I have been judged for identifying as Asian. And I have been judged by my Asian and white friends because of my white passing privilege. But I've been starting to really identify myself as that so that people can see that they, that I'm there and that they can maybe identify themselves in me. So I think I think law firms are doing a lot of good things right now. And the intention is there. And they're starting to put the resources into it and the time. And leadership is getting devoted uh, to these issues as well. It's a whole other conversation. And like I said, Michelle, I'd love to hear what could have made it easier for you at a law firm. And I'm not making assumptions that it was particularly hard, but, you know, what what can leadership do to make it easier? Well, thanks, Jen. I think it's inspiring. I think it's really important to see yourself in the leadership. And there's a system. And I think if we're going to have to work within the system, the system has to change. And so, you know, giving credit to work that's done by the people who's done it will will help. But I think it takes time, right? Change, change takes time. And I think there's a whole conversation that we can have, including, I know, unconscious bias training, which I know Faye does. But it has to happen kind of at all levels. But I'm, I'm really inspired to hear that, you know, let leadership at your firm is really, you know, paying attention to this issue. So that's really inspiring. And it's really important to hear, you know, your voice and Faye's voice at FACL. I think FACL has been such a great community for myself and for, for others too. Because when I see people succeed within the faculty community at their line of work it's it makes me want to do the same and it pushes me to work harder and it's also given me an avenue to build connections that I would not have otherwise had so yes Jennifer (laughs) faculty and I'm glad you're speaking on this podcast I'm so (laughs) glad you are too Faye this is wonderful (laughs) Michelle can I just say and and I I know there's so much more to say, but I, you know, I will say too that I, I think it's important for you to know that there is also this assumption that people leave private practice because they couldn't make it in the model. And I will just tell you that I'm on sitting on, on this side and I'm still here, but I actually think part of it is that we get too smart that we start to realize, you know, when you get a bit older, you're like, you know, I could do that. And I've seen this with my friends. I've found a pretty safe space. I have found a safe place, but I think I've seen it with some of my friends who have left private practice. It has nothing to do with them not being able to cut it. It has to do with looking at it and saying, why, why would I do that? And I I really picking up on what Faye is saying, like, you, you know, you make a decision at a certain point, like, you know, I'm not going to work within this system anymore. Like, why should I be trying this hard to make it work. And it's really, you're making it work for everybody else. So I think it's a really something that we have to dispel that, and I felt it too, uh, you know, growing up in the law, you know, whether you make it or not, you go into private practice or you do whatever it is, it has nothing to do with making it. People just get too smart and they, they get too much experience and realize it's not worth it. Anyway. <laughs> we'll actually jump into picking up on the unconscious bias training for lawyers. Uh, Faye, so as Michelle was saying, I, I believe you 
do unconscious bias training for lawyers. Are there any key takeaways from this training that you'd like to share with our listeners? I do a range of different training around unconscious bias, but also around how do you change culture? How do you activate behavior that will actually change culture in small ways? So understanding how unconscious bias works is the very first step of of a journey of taking accountability and taking responsibility for how your actions affect others in the community around you and your inactions affect other people. So I think that one of the big problems that law has, or rather I know that one of the problems that law has is that it is a very competitive culture in which no one is allowed to show weakness right? No one is allowed to show that they're human, that they're vulnerable in any way, that they're uncertain in any way. And that, as a culture, prevents people from accepting that they don't know the answers. And so, you know, so they jump to bias confirmation, right? It leads them to assimilate themselves to an existing culture rather than reflect on it or reflect on how it serves them or doesn't and who it serves and does it allow us to recognize our full humanity i think what's necessary is creating the skills for lawyers to actually be self-reflective and to accept that They are not infallible, that none of us are. And the more that we pretend that that is what it means to be professional, to be without weakness, to be all-knowing, to be completely put together, the more we are locking ourselves into a prison that reinforces the, the privileges and the cultures that create so much harm for people within law, whether or not they are benefiting from it. Like if you look at the mental health, addictions, substance abuse rates of lawyers, they are off the charts. It is one of the highest risk professions because of a toxic culture that we have created. And so, you know, accepting that you're human is step one, right? And then accepting that the way that we act has consequences for other people is step two. And then learning the skills of how to activate yourself from being a bystander who lets things slide to being someone who takes responsibility for creating a culture. That's the arc of the journey. And it requires a lot of skills that are not taught. Mm-hmm. to lawyers, but that are really necessary skills and that are actually really critical skills for problem solving and all those tasks that we do that are about bridging breakdowns in communications where they occur. I mean, every piece of litigation is about a failure of communication. And so all of those deep skills of listening, of reflection, of communication are skills we have to actively build, but that law is ignoring. 
So we need to break out of that individualist mindset and also understand what structural power looks like and how the law is an instrument of creating systems of power that we are embedded in whether we want to be or not. Hey, can so, I ask, oh, sorry. I don't want yeah, to interrupt, go ahead, but go I'm, ahead. Like, I'm very eager to ask you a question, just yeah. like a very practical question. So I'm sure that Andrea and Michelle and you have all been in a situation where either a senior person who you work with, opposing counsel or a judge, uh, says something that is racist. And I think that there's, and we've all been in that situation, and I often don't say anything about it because a number of things happen. It makes the person who said it uncomfortable, um, makes me uncomfortable. And then if it's somebody who I'm working with, it means that they won't give me more work, which is really important in private practice, right? Do you have any advice for, you know, if, if you're, if there's a young, if you're a young Asian woman and somebody says something that makes you feel terrible, uh, that is, that is a, a racist thing, do you have any advice for what they can do? Because it's also disempowering to not be able to say anything. But the reality is, is that if, you know, if it's a judge who's making a decision, you know, you need to focus on the client and what the result is. I, do you have any specific advice for the person in that situation? The way that I work with people on this is talking with them about what their specific location is, like understanding that you have a different capacity to act depending on what stage of your career you're at, um, depending on, you know, what sort of social and economic constraints you have in terms of do you have a massive amount of debt that you're worried about paying off? Do you have an extended family who you're supporting? Are you someone who's a first-generation person in law who's coming from a working-class background? You know, like, what are your circumstances? So there's no one ideal way to work or one ideal way to respond. But you're right that being able to act is a necessary thing. So just as a baseline, I put out there that one of the hats I wear is as Discrimination and Harassment Counsel for the Law Society. It's a confidential service that is supported by law society fees. So there is no charge to an individual who contacts the service. If you have experienced any form of discrimination or harassment contrary to the code from a lawyer or paralegal in Ontario, call us and we will help you through on a one-to-one basis in terms of outlining what your options are, what are the different possible outcomes, what sort of outcomes are you seeking, right? And you can tailor something individually. I know that I entered into law as the gold medalist in my graduating year. So I had all sorts of privilege to push back and say, yeah, I'm not okay with that. And I used it. And, but I have, you know, to this day, I continue to face that discrimination in all sorts of different contexts, including in court, where I have had in the face of like really sexist and uh, racist comments, had to uh, like actively push back and call judges out on it. And yes, that is something that you don't ever want 
the case to be about you as a lawyer. But when they treat you like that, they are disrespecting your client and you cannot let your client be treated in that way Hmm. by anyone in the justice system. If they are disrespecting the lawyer, they are disrespecting the client. Mm -hmm. And, And so I find that when people are bullies in the system, calling them out and, you know, standing your ground is sometimes the best way to deal with bullies, right? Is to say, you don't scare me and bring it on. There's a right of appeal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's also about your temperament. So there's no one right answer. But I think what is absolutely necessary is understanding what works for you, understanding your capacity to take on risk, understanding the degree of agency you have and the constraints on your agency. But you always have a choice. And what's absolutely necessary is having a community, whether it's within law or outside of law, and especially outside of law, that keeps you grounded, that has your back no matter what, that understands the realities of what it's like walking into a culture that is not yours. And so often, I am the only in the room, right? Whether it's the only woman or the only racialized person or the only racialized woman, right? That's the story of my life. And that is not going to change because my cohort in law is not going to change. I love working with the younger generations of lawyers coming up because seeing all of the brown faces, the black faces, the indigenous faces, everyone out there, it makes me feel like I have a place. That is so important for me. It sustains me in a way that, um, you know, that younger lawyers, uh, I don't think can appreciate because they have the luxury of having a cohort when I haven't. But having folks that you can that you can talk to who have your back, who understand you is the only way to get through this. So to our younger listeners and to others, Jen, Faye, do you have any podcast recommendations, books that you'd like to recommend or that you're reading right now about race, identity? Jen, let's start with you. Yeah, I think I was talking recently with the Diversity and Inclusion Council that, you know, people learn and and access supports in different ways. I have to admit, I haven't really gotten into podcasts, (laughs) which seems like a strange thing to say at the end of recording a podcast. Um, But but part of it is because it's my time in life with small kids. I I find it um, it, it difficult to access really anything. But I am listening to an audio uh, book of uh, Becoming uh, by Michelle Obama, and I'm finding it really inspiring. I didn't think about it as I started listening to it or reading it that that um, there'd be so many connections. But as a, a Black woman in the law, in private practice, trying to find meaning in her practice, it's been really wonderful to 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 listen to. And I, I have started doing it by, by audiobook. But I don't really have have a lot of recommendations, to be honest. Um, and I really get, like Faye was just saying, I get a lot of my support from a really mm-hmm. fabulous network of uh, wonderful friends and colleagues. So I'll leave it to Faye if she has 
good suggestions? Oh, I have a gazillion suggestions. <laughs> and I'd love to hear other people's suggestions. So a shout out to folks who are listening. Please send in your recommendations in the comments. You know, one of the first books that I read that helped me really feel seen was a book that came out in Toronto in oh the late 80s early 90s called Miscegenation Blues which was published by the, I think it was the Toronto Women's Press and it was a collective project of mixed race queer women and I read this book and thought this is my family and you know the work that I do is as I said all about race and gender and migration. So I read that stuff on the daily, but I also am a voracious reader of uh, fiction and nonfiction and listener of podcasts outside of work. And it's all on these themes. As a Filipina, my favorite book is Catherine Hernandez's Scarborough, because when I read it, in my early 50s, I realized it was the first time that I had read a piece of fiction that reflected my life and that had real Filipino characters in it. And I sobbed all the way through the book, finished it, flipped it back to the front and reread it all over again. And I've read it so many times because it's all the little things that all the nuances that are just the texture of my life. And I really have never treasured anything as much as that. And so I've been reading a lot of Filipino fiction since then, both by Filip Filipinos who've, uh, who've migrated around the world, but also from back home. I have been reading a lot of literature around by Indigenous writers and by black writers, whether it's fiction, whether it's political analysis, you know, going back decades to the present. So hit me up if you want some, some recommendations. The list is too long. But as sort of gateway discussions into some of this stuff, I loved the podcast Color Coded that Denise Balkison and Hannah Sung did which was, you know, a really gentle entry into discussions about race in contemporary Canada. I love Pam Palmiter's YouTube series, Warrior Life, and I'm excited for her book that's coming out in September called Warrior Life. The New York Times podcast, 1619, was absolutely genius. Everybody needs to listen to that. The list goes on. There's so much good writing and and good journalism and good podcasts that are out there. And yeah, I look forward to hearing your recommendations too. Um, Faye, I, I will just say I thought it was interesting. When I say I don't have recommendations, I, I wasn't thinking beyond on this specific topic. But I will say that it's, what's been really exciting to me in the last five years is that the media I'm consuming, so is I see myself represented in it in a way that I never have before. And it's so exciting. Like the, when the Star Wars movie came out, I'm a big science fiction fan. So <laughs> I just may, I'm going to make I just out myself there. But the, when, the new, when the new Star Wars came out and I saw me on the screen 
I, it was like the best movie I've ever seen. I have no idea if on the canon of Star Wars it was any good, but it was just so exciting. You know, even Kim's Convenience. I was yes. watching Kim's Convenience and I found it funny. It was as if I, would, I, I didn't understand what it meant to be catered to. And so I, I found it funny in a way that I've never found any other kind of uh, situation comedy funny. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize what was funny until I, I saw that. And then Severance, there was a book that I've read recently called Severance by Ling Ma. And, and, it, and it just, again, it came out in 2018 and I read it and it just blew my mind. It wasn't about being an Asian woman in America, but that wasn't the topic, but it just, it felt lived in and it felt like it was speaking to me and it meant something to me as literature in a different way than other things that I have read. And it's only really in the last five years that I really understood that all the media I had consumed wasn't actually directed at me. So yeah, no, I, I, you know, when you're asking for recommendations, I was thinking a little bit more academic, but there's a lot of really fabulous stuff being produced and some terrible stuff. But what's great about it is that it's still for us. Like, <laughs> it just feels so good. <laughs> I am perfectly happy to watch trashy Asian films because <laughs> everything doesn't have to be a masterpiece. We're allowed to do stuff that's trashy too, damn it. <laughs> right. Who's that? Who's that comedian? The comedian who uh, did those Netflix specials, Ali Wong. Ali, Ali, Ali Wong. Wong. And then that, and that new movie she did, Always, uh, Always Be My be Maybe. Baby. <laughs> We've I all watched, watched it. I watched that, and I realized I've never seen a romantic comedy where there were three Asian men who were there because they were really attractive, and I, I just. There, I'd, ne- I'd never watch anything like that before. And I know people who hated the movie, but I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, talk about Ali Wong breaking those stereotypes of the, you know, tacit, submissive Asian woman. <laughs> I think she's done that in spades. Yes. Yeah. So I want to say thank you, Jen and Faye, for joining us today and having such this engaging, wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for sharing your insights and experiences. You know, as Faye and and Jennifer have said, we hope you, our listeners, have really enjoyed this podcast as much as uh, Michelle and I have. We hope you found the discussion helpful. And if you do have any suggestions on podcasts or books or movies that you've enjoyed, please do share them with us. And if you've got any suggestions for future topics and podcast, please also contact us through our Faculty Ontario website because we'd love to hear from you. So take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for letting us have this space to talk. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We invite you to check out our website at on.facl.ca and subscribe to Fackle's newsletters and podcasts. If you have any questions, please contact us through our website. We look forward to having you join us again.